It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. When you think about the earliest Christians, you might imagine the 12 disciples like Peter and John, or maybe Paul the Apostle comes to mind. But what about women in early Christianity? What drew them to a life of discipleship? And what did they bring to the community and to the church as it began to spread? Few people have spent as much time thinking about questions like this as Dr. Carolyn Osick has. She's the Charles Fisher Professor of New Testament Emerita with the Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University. And she's a member of the Catholic Society of the Sacred Heart. Several years ago, she co-authored a watershed book about this subject called A Woman's Place, House Churches in Earliest Christianity, helping to spark a number of incredible studies about the lives of early Christian women. Osik visited the Maxwell Institute at Brigham Young University earlier this year to deliver the keynote address at our conference called Material Culture and Women's Religious Experience in Antiquity. You can watch her address now on the Institute's YouTube channel. In this interview, we dig a little deeper into Osik's research and thoughts about how the lives of ancient Christian women wove culture and faith into a tapestry of devotion. Questions and comments about this and other episodes of the Maxwell Institute podcast can be sent to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. We're joined today by Carolyn Osick. Thanks for coming to the Maxwell Institute, Carolyn. You're welcome. And you're here because we just held a wonderful symposium on material culture and women in, in the ancient world. People will be able to see your keynote address that you delivered last night. We'll have video available and people can look forward to that. But today I thought we would talk generally about women in ancient Christianity. But let's start off with the idea that some people have suggested that scripture can be generally accessible to everybody. It doesn't matter if the text is talking to men or to women or about men or about women, that scripture is sort of universally applicable. What are your thoughts about that kind of a response when people find out you do women in the scriptures? Well, scripture may be universally applicable, but our interpretations tend to be very particular. And the cultural experience of being men and being women is different, just like the experience of being part of a majority or being part of a minority is, is different. And the people who particularly are in the minority or the group that is not as well represented, are quite aware of that, much more than the majority group. And, and that's generally the case for women. Now, women are not a minority, but in, in biblical interpretation, in um, academics, in, in many things that are considered uh, important in the world, women have been a minority that's an interesting way to frame it because, as you said, like women aren't a minority. I mean, yeah. they're they're a significant part of of, of global population. They mm-hmm. have been in the past. They they are now. They will be in the future. And so they do seem to be almost a minority in the text itself. Though some people would say there isn't a lot of representation of women in the New Testament, for example. What do you say about that? Well, it, yes, in a certain sense, it's a man's world, and it was uh, very much a man's world that produced the Bible. Women were probably storytellers. Some of the stories that we have may reflect originally women's stories, particularly stories that in which women are prominent. But overall, it really is a male perspective on things that you get in the Bible. Can you think of a passage that sticks out in your mind? As you think about the work that you've done over the years on women in Scripture, are there any passages that keep coming back to you or that call your attention time and again as, as, some, as something important for you to focus on, to learn more about women in the ancient world? Well, the one that is, is most interesting to me is Romans 16, 1-2. 
That is where Paul, who is winding down his long letter to the Romans, tells them, he introduces to them Phoebe, this woman who is both a deacon and a benefactor. She's a deacon of the Church of Cancray, which is one of the seaports of Corinth. Paul is writing from Corinth. And he says that, that she has been his, uh, his benefactor. The, the word that you use, prostatus, is its patron, really. We use the word benefactor. You're a benefactor of the opera or the concert or something. It means you give a lot of money. You give a lot of donation. But what the word means, it, it opens up that whole context of patronage in, in ancient Mediterranean society. And it means someone who has taken you under his or her wing, as it were, to introduce you to the right people, to give you hospitality, to to show you around, basically. And, and that's what Paul is saying that Phoebe did for him in Corinth. And now she, for some unknown reason, is traveling to Rome, could be on business. She, she could very well have been a, a woman with her, her own business. She wouldn't be traveling by herself. She'd, she'd be traveling with other people. But she's going to Rome, and he's entrusting the letter to her. So when she gets to Rome, she's to deliver it to the, the people there. It's a, it's a fantastic two verses that just has so much story behind it. And when she's called a deacon there, what did mm-hmm. that role look like? Yeah, good question. She's a diakonos. It's the masculine word. There is no word yet for deaconess, diakonissa, until the third century. You've got two more centuries to go. So she is whatever the, the same people in Philippians 1.1 are doing. Philippians opens uh, with a greeting to the episkopoi and the diakonoi. And we sometimes mistranslate that bishops. They're not bishops in, in the usual sense now, except, well, maybe in LDS, because you have a, a different understanding of bishop. Than, yeah, like it's, they're over like a local Of a local, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it could be very well like that. And the diaconoi. So whatever those diaconoi, those deacons are doing is what she's doing in, in Kencray. And there's been a lot of study on that. The word itself means some kind of a servant or a helper. However, when you look at it in context, in Greek-speaking Roman period, often it has the context of, of agency, of being the official representative of somebody, a wealthy person, a, a person with uh, power and, and doing business, etc., will have somebody designated as a diakonos, a representative. And so if she's a diakonos of the Church of Kencray, it could be that she, she's, she speaks for that community. She's a spokesperson. She's a leader in some way. Was there a sense in which—how did that connect with ideas of priesthood or ecclesiastical authority at that time? Well, priesthood, let, let's exclude that, because that, that's really an idea that comes in later. But of ecclesiastical authority, local communities, as far as we can figure out, had their own leaders, whether they're called— Episcopoi, or whether they're called presbyters, they have they seem to have different names in different places. Remember, in First Corinthians twelve twenty eight, Paul says that God has established in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. Now. It, it, it's an ordering, it's a ranking. He says first, second, and third, and first are the apostles. Well, I think those are the um, the itinerant missionaries, and they're the founders of churches. So my thinking is that anytime Paul is in one of the churches he founded, he's the head honcho. You know, everybody will give way to him, but he's not there most of the time. So then you have the prophets and the teachers, 
And it seems to me that these are designations for local people. The prophets are the ones who have the gift of the Spirit, who can interpret the Word of God. And the teachers are the ones who then put it into practice, the ones who create stability in the community by carrying on the word of the gospel and the word of prophets and the word of the apostles. So the the leadership takes different forms and has different titles, but there certainly is local leadership, yes. And when you talk about the prophets, for example, in interpreting the scriptures by the Spirit, you're talking particularly about the Hebrew scriptures, right? We don't have a New Testament canon at this point. That's right. There is no New Testament canon. It's still being written. At Paul's time, most of it wasn't written yet. Would they look at letters of Paul as being canonical as well, or or would they be in a different register? No, a different register. We do know that by, well, the early second century, certainly, different churches founded by Paul are circulating his letters to each other. So they're forming collections of Paul's letters, but they're not yet calling it graphe, the the word for uh, that we would understand as scripture. It's it's the Hebrew scriptures that they're talking about when they hmm. they talk about that. And so while we have someone like Phoebe who is a deacon, so someone who may be a patron, someone who may be helping to financially support someone like Paul or other people, someone who might be providing a space for a church community to meet in. Mm-hmm. What we don't have, as far as I know, mm-hmm. uh, are similar writings, like something like Paul would write something and it would hold that kind of authority, and we lack that for women. Was that just not happening at all? Do you mean that, that women would be writing mm-hmm. this? Two well, churches. Two and, churches. Yeah. Well, almost nobody else is besides Paul. Mm-hmm. We don't have we don't even have indications that anybody else is writing letters like that to churches that they founded. There is a whole network of missionaries. I mean, we know that. We can get inklings of that from Acts, which is written later, of course. Mm -hmm. But even when Paul talks about uh, some of his assistants and, and collaborators, we know that there are other missionaries who are going out, particularly in the Eastern Mediterranean, and founding other churches, because we know that other churches come to be. For instance, the seven churches of Revelation, you know, uh, Paul didn't found those, somebody else did. So we know there are other people, but we don't have any evidence that those people are writing letters back to their churches. Maybe they did, but nobody talks about it, and Paul is the only one who is doing that, whose letters survive. Right, and I'm glad that you mentioned survival. This is one of the issues that biblical scholars bump into, is when we're talking about the evidence that a lot of our ideas are based on, um, that evidence is limited. And we have the written records, and not all of those survived, but we also have material evidence, other ways for us to access things about the past that we might not see in the written record. Can you think of some mm-hmm. examples of, of material evidence that biblical scholars have, have used to learn more about women in the ancient world? There, if we're talking about the earliest years, if we're talking about first century, we have to look at wider context. And what's important there is to realize that Christians weren't living their own little isolated lives. They were very much part of their own communities. You mean they didn't have a fork that said, like, Christian fork on it? Like, <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> no. They are very much a part of the world in which they live. And there are some writers that even make that point, like the letter of Diognetus in the second century says, we're just like you. We, we don't speak a different language. We don't have different culture. We're just like you. 
like everybody else. So in order to get a sense of how Christians live in the, in the material culture, as we say, we have to look at the, the surrounding world and the, the beautiful, beautiful things we have there, the opportunities we have are from Pompeii and Herculaneum, these famous cities that were destroyed by Vesuvius and then, and then excavated, you know. So from places like that, we have jewelry, we have inscriptions, we have indications of women's activities, of women engaged in business, of women who were patrons, and some of the the worship of other deities that they did. So so we do have the, the material evidence for their daily life. So when scholars are looking at different material evidence, how, how frequently are things discovered that might challenge entire ideas about things? I mean, are, are people, as they're excavating, find a fresco or find a statue or something that just mm-hmm. flies in the face of, of previous views? Or does it seem to be kind of a collective building on of it's more of a collective building though just recently and I can't tell you the details on this they found something at Pompeii that seems to be dated two months after the time we think that Vesuvius destroyed the city um, wow. so there are things yeah, that happen that that uh, cause redating and, yeah. and reevaluation yeah so when historians are dealing with ancient culture like that what's the simplest explanation you can give about how they piece together? visions of the past based on text, based on material culture? How do people who aren't specialists understand the process of doing that? Because sometimes you just think, oh, they're a scholar. However they did it, they must have done it right. That's Mm -hmm. all. But I think it helps to get a picture of the type of imagination that's involved in this kind of scholarship. Yeah, that's a very complex question because it involves interpretation. And interpretation is always something that's somewhat subjective. So... When scholars look at this material, particularly the interface between texts and material objects, art historians approach it differently from biblical scholars, and and it gets a bit complex. A text may say, do this, and we have material evidence that they're not doing it. And a good example of that is is the, the supposed prohibition of art in Judaism, in ancient Judaism. And then you have this enormous synagogue in Dura Europas that is just, the walls are full of images of biblical stories, you know. So what it does actually is to free you from reading the texts in a fundamentalist way. Just because somebody wrote, this is the way we do it, doesn't mean that's the way they did it. Yeah. <laughs> it's that person's opinion. In and, fact, sometimes they may have written that be- precisely because it wasn't well, happening exactly. that way. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And a good example of that is Tertullian, who... This uh, is an early church father. Early church father, late second century, who writes a whole treatise against Christians attending the the theater and the games. Why does he have to write a whole treatise if they don't do that? You know, mm-hmm. he, he's trying to convince them not to do it, but they're doing it. <laughs> so the interplay between text and image or artifact is a, is a complex one. 
But it makes for a lot of interesting possibilities for researchers. And we saw that at the conference this weekend, where people could bring together a lot of different types of evidence to learn more about the ancient world. And and you've obviously, you've been kind of a pioneer in, in a lot of these studies. So it's a real treat to have you visiting Brigham Young University. And we're talking with Carolyn Osick. She's Charles Fisher Professor of New Testament Emerita with the Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University. She's also author, co-author of the book, A Woman's Place, House Churches in Early Christianity. All right, Lynn, we talked about Phoebe a moment ago. I want to talk about some of the other women who are named in the New Testament in particular. There aren't a whole lot of them, but the stories that we might glean from just their names being mentioned really can tell us a lot about women in early Christianity. So let's talk about some of these. Priscilla, Perpetua, and Thecla are three that I wrote down as I read the book. Mm-hmm. You can say a word about all of them or pick one of them. Just introduce us to these people. Well, Priscilla is is a New Testament figure and a very interesting one. We know not a whole lot about her, but she's married to a man named Aquila. They're both Jewish. Uh, They both seem to be living in Rome at one point, and then, then they're in Corinth, and then they're in Ephesus. So... They move around. Was that common for people to do? Or well, was that in some, to some extent, okay. yeah. Particularly if uh, they had a business that did that. And um, Acts says that they were tent makers, leather workers, you know. Maybe similar to Paul. And Paul was too, and yeah. that that's how he kind of um, struck out with them, mm. you know. So you have one figure there of a married woman who is part of a, a ministry couple team. Perpetua, it has to be Perpetua and Felicitas together. Wow, that is a very moving, very powerful account of two young women, Perpetua, a young mother, 22 years old, Felicitas, a slave woman who is pregnant at the time of her arrest and gives birth in in prison, and both of them were martyred, probably in March of 203, and there's been a lot of questioning recently about the authenticity of parts of the account, but but in the account, it actually says that the, the narrator says, now I'm turning this over to Perpetua, she's going to speak for herself, and then there's an account of her visions, and then the narrator comes back to, to tell the end of it. I do tend to think that that is authentic diary, as it were, of Perpetua's visions. So she she has dreams that for her interpret what is going to happen. And uh, you have to read the text. It's it's just very, very powerful. Really. And we don't have something like that in the New Testament. Is that because it was written too late? Or what are some of the reasons why a text like that wouldn't have been considered for canonization at some point? Oh, it's way too late for, for canonization. The, the canon of the New Testament goes into the early second century, but that's... And some even would debate that some of those last books are, are that late. It's mostly first century, though the, the canon of the New Testament wasn't fixed until sometime in the middle of the fourth century. But different churches had their own collections of canon, and, and uh, the Acts of Perpetua and Felicitas would be way too late for that. Do you think there's any deliberate reasoning behind keeping any texts out that that centrally feature women as much as that text did? Or was it just the case that people didn't record those stories, they didn't carry the same import, so they weren't even maybe even written down originally? 
Like, in other words, why why don't we have a book like that in the New Testament? Well, it didn't happen I mean, until later. But there are very few martyrdom accounts in, in the New Testament. There's Stephen, the death of Stephen in Acts. There's an allusion to Antipas in uh, the beginning of Revelation. Uh, Antipas, my witness, my martyr. But the cult of martyrdom is something that really does not develop until a little bit later, and that's another whole topic. So it's more about genre than about gender. It's about genre. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, hmm. um, there are some stories about women in the New Testament. Um, Mary Magdalene is is a very interesting character. What about some of the Gnostic texts that came up? So these mm-hmm. are other texts that were written and that sort of had other views or other stories about someone like Mary and these just you know they yeah. weren't canonized. Yeah, the figure of Mary Magdalene is is a is quite a rich one, you know. I think she was I think she was probably a, a historical character, a disciple of Jesus, not necessarily a young one. I don't go for the idea about them being married, secretly married, you know. I think she's probably older than Jesus and uh, a woman of means and somebody who just really was caught up in this movement around Jesus with a number of other women. And she seems to have been, for the women disciples, what Peter was for the male disciples, mm. the, the spokesperson and leader, the one they looked to for leadership, you know? So that later, all of these other stories develop around her as a recipient of special revelation from the risen Christ and a particularly strong leader in some churches. And she was picked up, uh, yes, particularly in the Gnostic communities, which were in many ways more open to the influence of women, and yet at the same time, some of the Gnostic stories were highly misogynist. Yeah, like women will become men. Like, yeah, yeah, right, right. Like Thanks a lot, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, doesn't everybody want to be? I don't understand. <laughs> right. Also, the, the, the most Gnostic systems have a male and a female balance, even in the heavenly realm, you know, something that, that what developed into Orthodox Christianity uh, lacked. <laughs> Do you think there was deliberate resistance to that idea? I mean, it, I guess what I'm getting at is the New Testament that we have today, how well does that match the real gender dynamics of the earliest Jesus movement? Was it a very heavily patriarchal movement that he founded that gave men particular roles and women particular roles? Or do you see something different in the evidence? Well, that's the way the society worked. Men had distinct roles and and women had distinct roles, and and there certainly is some melding of that. But you have to distinguish also conceptions, ideas, and how things actually worked. And, And most of the theory very strongly distinguished the roles of men and women. Men are the leaders, women are the people who take care of the family. Philo, the Jewish philosopher, even says that the outdoor life is suited for men and the indoor life for women. And so you have these, what are elite ideals, poorer people couldn't live that way, but in in elite families, this kind of uh, seclusion of, of women. So at the same time, women really operated with agency within their own families. And at the level of patronage, when you come to higher status women, they were doing much more than that. 
when you come to the Roman aristocracy, there were women who were very important in political decision-making, even though that they couldn't hold political office. So it, it's quite varied. Mm. We also, again, we mentioned Phoebe as a, as a deacon. Do we find other women in positions of like teacher or being referred to as apostles or anything like that mm-hmm. in the early texts? Mm-hmm. Well, Mary Magdalene, of course, is called an apostle of the apostles. And that's late second or early third century tradition. Thecla, we haven't talked about Thecla yet, is perhaps completely legendary character, uh, a disciple of Paul, who is also understood to be an apostle. The Acts of Thecla is a second century document. So beyond the time when it might have slipped in the canon. Exactly. And Thecla is a a loving disciple of Paul, and and at one point in the narrative, he says to her, go and teach the Word of God. So he designates her as an apostle, and she goes off to a different place. Yeah, that's and, like the commission that Jesus gave. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And Thecla was the most popular female saint through the 5th century, more popular than Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mm. There were shrines of Thecla everywhere. There were three different stories about where she ended her life. She was so popular that in Egypt they invented their own version of Thecla. She was enormously popular. And here was a woman who defied all of the traditional female roles. So that why she was so popular is it remains a mystery, really. Yeah, that's fascinating. So mm-hmm. she didn't fit. When you she say roles, fit. like gender stereotypes about yeah, like the proper place of women in society. She and, didn't fit them But she was all. a venerated figure. Mm-hmm. What was the impulse behind making the acts of Thecla then? Like, was that in reaction to the fact that there weren't any prominent texts that were becoming canonized that, that featured strong women, or what kind of things led to One that? One theory is that stories like that originated in, in women's circles, women's storytelling circles. But then they became uh, generalized, you know, the men took them on too. And Tertullian in, in the late second century says that He's arguing that women shouldn't baptize, and he says, let nobody use the example of Thecla, who baptized herself, that's part of the story, Mm. because Paul kept putting off baptism, she says, I'm doing it myself, and she (laughs) baptizes herself. Uh, Nobody (laughs) should use the example of Thecla, because the, the story of Thecla was invented by a presbyter in Asia Minor, and he lost his position because of it. Hmm. So Tertullian is giving us some maybe true information about the origins, but the the stories of Thecla really took off. And I, maybe it's it's precisely because she so defied the stereotypes. Did did it inspire other women to do the same? We don't know. Yeah. But she was just enormously popular. Yeah, we just don't see, you don't see records of that. You Mm-mm. don't see... No. So we just have these fragments. See, this is what's mm-hmm. hard about some of this research is you're really dealing with putting a puzzle together. You don't have the the box where you can see the full picture, mm-hmm. and you and you don't have all the pieces either. And you're try, trying. That's to, right. Now there's there's uh, the case of Montanism, you know, which was a kind of a charismatic revival in the middle of the second century, originated in in Phrygia in in Asia Minor, and there were three names associated with leadership there: Montanus, a man from whom the name of the whole group derived. Sort of like Lutherans, Martin Luther. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Priscilla and Maximilla, two, it's a different Priscilla from the New Testament, two prophet women 
leaders. And the Montanists were known for that, for the their openness to women's leadership. This became a problem for Tertullian because Tertullian was not at all against women's leadership. They shouldn't baptize, da-da-da. But then Tertullian, in his later years, had this great sympathy for Montanism. And so he had to sort of reverse his, mm. his ideas there. But there, there are those two prophets. And Eusebius, the church historian in the fourth century, is railing against the Montanists. And he says that they have these women leaders, and this is ridiculous. And they should not rely on the example of Amia and Quadratus. Now, who are Ami and Quadratus? He doesn't explain who they are. They're prophets they're th- that were known to his audience. Well enough known. Well enough that he did name. not have to describe them. Yeah. So Amia is a, is a woman's name. So we're talking about another female prophet there. These women who are, we know their names and we know next to nothing else besides uh, about them. That's the truth. In part because it seems like this Christianity was becoming more institutionalized, that there was an effort to sort of identify who the correct leaders were. And, and or Did Eusebius ever speak positively of women prophets? No, he didn't. He, he wants to tamp down on anything like that, any kind of prophetic enthusiasm. And perhaps... Largely, it was a reaction against Montanism. The Montanism was a, a doctrinally orthodox movement. You know, it was not heretical, but it was very apocalyptic. And so they uh, thought it was the end times. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. And was uh, that kind of the prophecy was was maybe mm-hmm. dealt a lot with. This is what's about to happen. That's like, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it was going to happen in right in Phrygia, right in mm-hmm. Asia Minor, where where it all started. Mm-hmm. And by the time of Eusebius, who, he's middle of 4th century, and the institutional church is well established, and the authority of the bishops, and, and they want a quieter version of Christianity. Hmm. And so they they often associate the, the leadership of women with heretical movements, with apocalyptic movements, and people like Eusebius do everything to discredit the authority of women. Because by that time, it's a, it's a strongly male-run church, except for the patrons, the wealthy women who have the money <laughs> to pay for the churches. <laughs> yeah. and, and those women continue to have authority. And then you move into the whole ascetic movement where a number of women are prominent, and that's another whole story. Yeah, and that's a story that we'll get to in just a minute, too. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Carolyn Osick. She's talking with us today about women in the ancient world and in Christianity. She co-wrote the book, A Woman's Place, House Churches in Earliest Christianity. So we're going to rewind the clock again to go, uh, we've kind of gone up through the fourth century. We're going to go back to the beginning again here and talk about house churches, because that's one of the main avenues of research in this book that you wrote. So What were house churches, and what did women have to do with those house churches? When Christian groups were formed in a a city, let's say Paul goes to Corinth and he gets some people who are interested in this, and they they want a place to meet. Where are we going to meet? Well, the most likely place is somebody's house. Why not the synagogue? 
a lot of the people come from the synagogue, but there are a lot of leaders in the synagogue who aren't too happy about this movement. Okay. So they, okay. they move out of the synagogue. Good, good. And into private places. And, and houses are one of the best places. Now, we don't think it's 100% in houses. They, they could meet in workshops or, you know, other places of business or something. But the house seems to be the best place. And Paul often will say, greet so-and-so and so-and-so in the church in their house, the mm. ecclesia, the assembly in their house. So we're talking about meetings of small groups of people, maybe up to 30, something like that. That's a you know, just a wild guess, based on the space that we have in houses that are that have survived that we can see in places like Pompeii and Herculaneum, for example, modest houses. And they would meet there for a simple meal of some kind, which would also have the words of Eucharist and the sharing of news. What's Maybe reading a letter from... And the reading of the letter. Of, oh, if a letter just arrived from Paul, yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, reading the scriptures, and we get glimpses of which scriptures they were reading with, when we have biblical allusions in, in something like Paul's letters or Acts. Now, the role of women. The ordinary thing at a meal in somebody's house is that, of course, the owner presides at the meal. And if it's a case of a house owned by a couple, it would logically be the man. But a number of cases in the New Testament show us that some of these houses were owned by women, and they would therefore be the logical leaders of the meal. In any case, women would be the ones who would sort of carry things on. And when you kind of reflect on how the house church functions there, it's not only a place for the weekly meeting of the congregation, but also it would be the place that would give hospitality to visiting Christians. And just like the Jews and like other ethnic groups, national groups, they would seek each other out. You'd get the word, I I have to go to Ephesus, where can I stay? Mm -hmm. And you'd have a name before you got there. And so for visitors, hosting visitors, hosting people for uh, preparation for baptism, instruction after baptism, any kind of ongoing life of the community would take place in these houses. And the women would be some of the key people doing that. And one of the things I enjoyed in the book is how you talked about, since this was happening in these houses, it was a very domestic space, including the presence of children, too. Mm -hmm. And there would also, in most cases, be slaves and, and other people. So maybe give a picture of the household church with those other people in mind as well and how a Christian community or how Christian meeting mm-hmm. might be to experience it when you've also got kids and you've got slaves right, and you've right. got a woman perhaps as the as, as the, the leader. leader. Yeah. Yes. Yes. In some cases a meeting of a house church may have included only or or predominantly the members of that household. If you're talking about a, a rather large household and everyone there, more or less everyone, is a baptized member of the community. But we know, I mean, there's ample evidence that there were not forced conversions. People made their own decisions about that. Tertullian later on uh, writes about what would happen. He's writing to his wife, and it's it's really a public treatise to convince women who are widowed not to remarry and especially don't remarry an unbeliever. And he he ticks off all the difficulties that there would be in, in that case. So women and men made their own decisions, even couples in marriage, uh, slaves as well 
could make their own decisions about whether they would choose baptism or whether they want to go down to the local temple to somebody else, to some other god, you know. So it's unlikely that most of the households that met together were only that household and only, and, and everybody believers. So the alternative is that it's all kinds of different people coming from any place in the neighborhood, all the the people who belong to this group, and they could be very different. They could be slaves. They, the children are in the household, and if, if a, a parent is coming from another house into a meeting, maybe bringing the children with them. So you have to envision a, a very mixed kind of a community there. And my co-author, Margaret MacDonald, in, when we were talking about this book, A Woman's Place, uh, used two images, that uh, rather startling images, of people coming in, walking into the house, and somebody tripping over the children's toys that had been left in the way, and the other of the, the house church meeting being distracted by the cries of a woman giving child, giving birth in a back room, you know, because these were families and family life went on there. One of the places, if I remember correctly from the book, A Woman's Place, one of the places that we get some evidence about how these house churches operated or, or how women in that context operated is from some of the writings of of anti-Christians, of people who saw Christians as social deviants or as mm-hmm. causing these problems. And and it seems, if I'm remembering correctly, that one of the cautions they kept giving was about these meddling women and to mm-hmm. sort of like beware of these meddling women. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, uh, there are some writers who do that. And it's one of the ways of, of trying to discredit the movement to say that women have too much control. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're in too many positions of leadership because, of course, a society should be well-regulated by male control. Yeah. So there's a sense in which broader cultural pressure could have helped shape how the church ecclesiology developed as well in terms of what was acceptable in society. That is a whole question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, says that women should keep silent in the churches, I don't allow women to teach or have authority over men, but let them remain in silence. Where is he getting that? It's pretty much stock conservative social philosophy, you know, and he seems to reflect that. So if you're going to think that early Christianity in the first generation was very egalitarian, then you have to deal with this kind of thing. And I say, I just don't think that it was. I, th- I think there certainly were egalitarian tendencies there, but uh, it, it was still very much part of the, of the world around it. As you said, that's a really big question. It's the mm-hmm. question about whether Christianity was more freeing for mm-hmm. women or whether mm-hmm. it was more restrictive for women. Mm-hmm. But that is a false dichotomy. From what that's I right. can tell from the book, it, that's it's really right. neither of those things. It's so, neither of those things, no. What are some other ways you would explain that about what Christianity did for the role of women compared to broader society in terms of freeing some things, in terms of restricting some things? Well, first of all, freeing and restricting, it's kind of a Western bias you know, and a modern bias, because we do tend to see things in those terms about oppression and and liberation, with good reason. But it is our mindset, and it wasn't their mindset. Their mindset was, uh, how do I live within my family and live for the, the good of my family and live a just and a happy life? So did Christian liberate women? There's a real pitfall on that question, because liberate from what? And then you fall into anti-Judaism, really a false idea of Judaism that 
that Jesus uh, liberated women from the oppression of the law, and and that's just not right. That 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 that's a very wrong understanding of how Judaism operated then, and of how people who are faithful to the the Jewish law see their own fidelity. It's not oppression. So there's that problem. And then, okay, then were women liberated from the oppression of Roman law? Well, in Roman customs, not at all. I mean, we have some good evidence of, of a great deal of, of autonomy, of agency on the part of women in, in the, the common culture. So, so the whole idea of liberation kind of falls flat, you know. So what did Christianity do for women? I think it continued the same directions that were already there in the culture. It certainly brought women into full membership. I don't think there was ever a question of women being excluded from full membership. And and Paul's declaration, Galatians 3.28, you know, that there, uh, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Well, some people take that as a kind of a liberation proclamation. You know, he doesn't say free. He says one. <laughs> he doesn't say equal. He says one. In other words, connected. Connected. Or, yeah. And with the same access to Christ and the same access to salvation, equal in that sense. Equal in society in the way we would understand it? No, that just was not part of their thinking. And I've seen some theologians then take that and say that, it, like, for example, Catholic liberation theologians would would say that in its context, just what you said, that Paul, that this is kind of the way Paul was saying, but that it also sort of planted these seeds that could bear different mm-hmm. fruit down the road. Sure, yeah. sure. And down the road, as as our consciousness changes and as we as we have a broader understanding of the human person and the dignity of the human person the whole way in which that the understanding of the human person has evolved has changed the way we look at those texts and the potential is there but first century people were not thinking like 21st century people and we have to respect that difference. Yeah. And it's really tempting to just flatten the distance. Mm-hmm. And not just when when we think that it sort of aligns with our current beliefs, but also in some ways where it challenges our current beliefs. I guess reading your book and the book of other biblical scholars has served as a really important reminder to me about not flattening history. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the old saying of the past is a foreign country. They, they do things differently there. Well, I mean, that's true. There's also value in drawing comparisons, and this can get contentious for people, though. <laughs> like, I'm sure you've you've seen different biblical interpretations about what Paul might have meant by that verse in Galatians. Sure. And you can pit that against his declaration that I don't let women speak in the churches. Mm-hmm. What's your advice to, to Christians who, who are trying to come to terms with what seem to be competing impulses in the text that they believe is revealed from God? I would look to the competing impulses within ourselves and within our own thinking, because the texts are dynamic. They, they contain levels of potential meaning which we engage as we interact with the the text and with our own culture and our own understanding. So a text can carry authority, a biblical text can carry authority, and at the same time we can say, but we have a new understanding of that now. 
And if someone wants to say, the Bible says women should not speak in church and therefore they should not speak in church, mm-hmm. you know, I look to where's the cultural bias that's operating there? Does, mm-hmm. does this person, is this person really glad that that, with that interpretation, because I don't want women to speak in church, well, then that's a thing to look at. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of, I guess, yeah, Scripture invites us to not only dig into Scripture, but maybe dig into ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a mirror for us, you know. I think it's Martin Buber who said that the Bible is not a theology for us, it's an anthropology for God. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> That's Carolyn Osick. We're talking about women in the ancient world and in Christianity. Let's talk about household codes, Lynn. This is something that biblical scholars talk about, household codes in the scriptures. And these are passages where they sort of lay out ideal relationships between men and women and between mm-hmm. how like a household should be run. So give us an introduction to what household codes are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a, a name that biblical scholars give to this. What we're referring to is these sets of uh, mutual relations, reciprocal relations in the well-run patriarchal household. They originate with Hellenistic authors who write on household economy, household maintenance. And actually, the origin is in Aristotle, in um, book one of the, um, the laws. The background is in Aristotle who talks about the the head of the household the 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 male free greek male who is the father of his household and it talks about his relationship to his wife to his children and to his slaves so this is kind of like how to be a happy ruler over your little yes kingdom. exactly so he should be an enlightened monarch with his wife, and with his children, definitely a monarch, but a despot to the slaves. So different relationships to the three. So we have laid out there the three of a spouse, children, and slaves. That's Those are the components of the household. So Hellenistic writers, that is writers who are um, writing in Greek uh, in the three, two or three centuries before the New Testament time, are laying this out and how should, the, should everyone relate to the father, husband, master, and how you, it's really household management, how do you keep this going harmoniously? And so you will have reflections on, uh, for instance, how the husband should teach his wife what to do uh, to run the household, which is kind of laughable because she probably already knows. She's learned it from her mother. <laughs> and you have to envision here also a marriage in which the the husband is probably quite a bit older than the, than the wife. She's a, a young girl. And, and may have been married before, like, it, yes, a he lot may, of women died in childbirth. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So so the, it's the ideal of this, this young bride being taught everything by her husband. So it gives those kinds of discussions. So, And this isn't Christian, this, this is these this is, this preceding. This is yeah. preceding. Yeah. So in, particularly in the Pauline literature in the New Testament, 
not in, well, you know, biblical scholars, New Testament scholars make divisions now, distinctions about the letters we think that Paul actually wrote in the, the so-called Deutero-Pauline letters. So it's really in the Deutero-Paulines. It's in Colossians and Ephesians that you really have this developed a little bit in First Peter. But really, uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 are the two passages in, in which you get this full-blown. And the difference here is that each group is addressed. It's very interesting. The, in this Hellenistic household management, the whole thing is addressed to the man, the, the head of the household. Here, everybody is addressed. So everybody is given personhood. And interestingly, it's the subordinate that is addressed first. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. It's really obey your fathers. Fathers, be good to your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, don't abuse your slaves, you know. So there's a way in which the household codes in the New Testament actually take a step forward toward... um, personification toward recognizing the the personhood of everybody who's involved there and yet they maintain the traditional order okay so we we look at them now 2000 years later and we say ah. <laughs> most most people do there's <laughs> still some do. that like really latch on to that well, submissive but what do they do with the slaves Oh, well, mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, see, and I say, if you're going to take part of it, you've got to take the whole thing, yeah. you know? So, well, what do you do with students who express concern about that? Like, you've, been to, you've taught a lot of students over the mm-hmm. years who mm-hmm. revere the Bible. They bring this text to you, and they say, if, if I'm going to be a believer and I think this text is the Word of God, here it does say, women be submissive, so on and so forth. I've never had a student who has said that to me. Maybe they don't dare. <laughs> <laughs> but I, in in all the years that I taught Catholics, um, Catholics just don't think that way anyway. So, yeah. yeah, like so, it's it's just not a cultural pressure anyway. It's, it's not a cultural yeah. pressure, no. Mm-hmm. But I, when I teach it, I always uh, emphasize that in its day, this was a very progressive yeah. text, and it isn't anymore. And that's indicative of how things change. Mm-hmm. What kind of principles carry through for you then? Do you see do you see something in those texts? In other in other words, I guess is there a way that you as a as a person who believes in the Bible and 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 as a Catholic yourself, is there a way to redeem those texts for you as a believer? Is there a way to or is it just simply contextualizing it and recognizing it in its context that does the mm-hmm. re, the redeeming? That, that's what it, it, that's what does the redeeming for me mm-hmm. is that in its time this was a really good text. Mm-hmm. So I guess what they show us then is these household codes was kind of a genre that biblical writers didn't invent. They were mm-hmm. sort of no. adopting this form that already existed. That's right. And they were putting a Christian spin on it by mm-hmm. by directly addressing people and acknowledging the personhood exactly. uh, of women and, and children and slaves as well, mm-hmm. in, in addition to men, but still kind of upholding the similar power relations mm-hmm. as before. Yeah. So as scholars approach these household codes and, and they're interpreting these texts and they're interpreting the material evidence and they're learning more about women in ancient Christianity and, and about uh, ancient Christian men, how have the scholarly discussions changed over time? Have you seen waves of scholarship where something become, it becomes fashionable to interpret it in a certain way and then that sort of overturned, I guess, just the general arc of scholarly development on these questions throughout your career? Yeah, I was doing my doctoral work in the 70s, and everything was the historical critical method. So it was 
what is the original form of this text, when you, especially when you're dealing with gospel passages? Uh, what are the sources here? And uh, how do you put it all together? And the trouble with the historical critical method, which had already been going for about two centuries, is that you, you can't carry it forward. You, you get to the text, and then, then what do you do with it, you know? So Yeah, you like have, okay, we got the oldest version of the text we think we can get. Yeah. There it is. So what? Yeah. So what? It doesn't help at all with, with pastoral interpretation. It doesn't help with preaching. You've probably heard a sermon that's nothing but an exegesis. It's boring. You know, it, it doesn't give you anything. So what uh, then has come in since then is a, a particularly an emphasis on literary criticism, on, on looking at the text as literature, and so how is it constructed, and, and what are the author's uh, characters, and how are the characters used, and what are the intentions, and and you get into all kinds of other possibilities, possible interpretations of texts. And then since then, what is broken loose now is cultural diversity. And so we have post-colonial interpretation coming, particularly from from people whose experience is post-colonial in different parts of the world. And feminist interpretation, of course, is part of that. And post-colonial is basically like peoples who have been under the control or under the administration of other of foreign powers. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. And then feminist interpretation. Feminist interpretation, uh, gender, all kinds of gender criticism now coming in. So there's a variety of method now. And I think it's much richer. And, and historical criticism is still a good base. But I think we recognize now that it, it can't be the whole thing. You know? Yeah. So now you're asking about... Um, yeah, so the original question, that actually sets the stage for it, mm-hmm. I think. You hint at it a little bit in the introduction to A Woman's Place, where when, when this book came out, it was kind of part of this flourishing of new research mm-hmm. on women. There was a, a lot of optimism about what could be found out. Then there was like this, there was a wave of pessimism about, about how, how accurate or how close such research could really mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. And then there was kind of a return. like And a return again now, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think there was a slump in, in that uh, we, with the methods we were using and the assumptions we were using, we, were, we had sort of done it. You know, So the new things now are a resurgence of, well, particularly, for instance, the use of uh, art history, the whole, all the kind of interpretation that comes in there with material artifacts, and this weekend has been a good example of that. And the use of the concept of agency, looking at how agency functions and how women exercise agency. And before, I think, in the earlier years of this kind of study, well, first of all, we had the Western bias, which we've already talked about, that everything was about oppression or liberation. Mm-hmm. And so then we were looking at acts of resistance, acts of difference from the stereotype or from the usual thing. And I think more now we have the understanding that women, in this case, women could exercise agency without going against the major movements in which they are a part. That there are ways within traditional roles to live fulfilled lives, and that many women choose that, and many women in antiquity did. 
That's Carolyn Osick. We're talking with her today about the book A Woman's Place, House Churches in Earliest Christianity. We're also talking a little bit about the symposium that was just held here through the Maxwell Institute about material culture and women's religious experience in antiquity. Lynn, before we go, I wanted to talk a little more personally with you here at the end. As a scholar who's also religious, as a Catholic, how do you deal with with research or scriptures that sometimes runs counter to what your tradition's typical interpretation is. For example, you've done work on women as deacons and other things like this. Catholics don't ordain women. Have you experienced any difficulty in reckoning with differences between your ancient research and how the Catholic Church operates today? Mm-hmm. Sure, and I think anybody who is who belongs to a mainstream church and who thinks critically is going to run up against situations in which you you find some of the the official things hard. And uh, that's certainly true of me as well. But I think you have to understand faith and you have to understand membership in a church on many different levels. There is official public teaching. There is tradition of scholarship, and the Catholic Church has a very strong tradition of scholarship, of biblical and historical scholarship, which leaves us free to follow, to investigate, to come to conclusions, scholarly academic conclusions about the evidence that may in some way be in tension with official ideas, official teaching. But a a church community, particularly a universal community the way the Catholic Church is, is always in movement. It's always evolving. And there are always different ways of understanding and different levels of understanding. And and you can always find a place where you can always find a place to, to feel at home. Yeah, so so the question then to me becomes, how has scholarship about the Bible impacted your life as a religious believer? How, is, how has your research existed along with your relationship with God? Mm-hmm. Well, it's taught me that nothing is absolute, except God, yeah. of course, that nothing else is absolute, that everything is changing, and that we we are all evolving as we go, and we'll continue to do that until we come to the point where we don't evolve anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of things always evolving, what would you say about the future of studies on women in the Bible going forward? We just had this conference where we had students presenting papers. What do you see the field doing here in the near future that people can be excited about? Well, I was very excited about the uh, interplay between art and, and artifact and, and uh, material culture and text. And I think that that really is a good way to go. And I was heartened by all the younger scholars who were here and students as well, who are seriously interested in this and doing good work. And I think that's going to be great. Yeah. And if people are wondering, we didn't film all of the sessions. We only filmed the keynote. But I know that Catherine Taylor, who's here at the Maxwell Institute and who helped organize the symposium, she she said that students and, and other scholars will be working toward publishing uh, mm-hmm. their work mm-hmm. in various venues or perhaps together. So the work that we were able to see here at Brigham Young University this weekend hopefully will become more available in, in the future. Mm-hmm. Lynn, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today. You're welcome. Mm-hmm.